together and in this gospel the church is one it is indeed the death burial and resurrection of jesus christ that unites us with all of the differences that we have differences in gender and ethnicity and background and gifts and abilities and interests united in the gospel Paul writes, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. One spirit, one mind, side by side, firm in the gospel. But that gospel that unites us also has to be lived out. And so Paul continues, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves." The gospel unites us, but the gospel needs to be lived out. One of the ways we live that out is what we're doing this morning in gathering at the Lord's table. Because it is indeed the Lord's table. It's not my table. It's not your table. It's not Berean's table. It's the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we have believed the gospel, and if we are living out the gospel, not perfectly, because none of us are perfect, then this table is for us to gather And to celebrate our unity with Christ and our unity with one another in the gospel, in what Christ has done for us. The old saying is true that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We are all united by what Christ has done for us. So if you take and take the smaller end up and peel back that top tab and take out that small wafer and hold on to that for just a moment... Because this reminds us that Jesus Christ, God the Son, took on human flesh for you and for me so that he could be our Savior. So as the synth plays, would you just bow your head and join me in prayer and thanking Jesus for coming, being willing to take on a body for you and for me. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for sending your only Son to this earth for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for being willing to come and to humble yourself and become obedient even to death on a cross for us. We rejoice in that as we pray in your name. Amen. As often as you eat, remember what he did for you.
Paul writes, the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of that one bread. We're united in our faith in Christ. He also writes, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? We participate together because we're united in what Jesus Christ did for us. So would you bow your head again and pray with me and think about the fact that Jesus didn't just come to be a good example. He came to die on the cross for your sins and mine. Pray with me as the piano plays. Jesus, thank you for being willing to be the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world for us. Thank you for your shed blood that cleanses us from sin. We pray in your name. Amen. If you peel back that other tab, and as you do that, realize that this juice is just a symbol, but it is the symbol of what Jesus did for us in shedding his blood. As often as you drink, remember that. At these celebrations of what Christ has done for us, we also remind you of the Benevolent Fund because that's another expression of our oneness. As we give and those monies are usually and generally used for financial needs of people within this local body of believers. So you can give through any of the normal means or if you came prepared to give and you want to drop something in the plates that are on the table as you leave, You can certainly do that as well. Our unity is supernatural, based in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That means it also takes supernatural power to live out that unity in the power of the Holy Spirit. pastor's text this morning is from Joshua 22, carrying confrontation. And as he just mentioned, if you look at his outline, you'll see the word unity. And that can only come through the Holy Spirit working through his people, even in the most difficult of times, giving us guidance. And so we sing a prayer as we come to the word of God this morning. Would you stand together as we sing? Living breath of God, breathe.
breathe new life into my willing soul. Let the presence of the risen Lord come renew my heart and make me whole. Cause your word to come alive in me. Give me If you would turn in your Bibles or on your electronic devices to Joshua chapter 22, we continue on in our series, Purposeful Pursuit, making a difference in what we are pursuing in life. April the 12th, 1861, cannons thundered and the first shots of the American Civil War fell on Fort Sumter in Charleston Harbor, South Carolina. It was a bloody conflict, but many expected it to be over in weeks or maybe in months, and instead it raged on for four long years of civil war. As we come to this passage this morning in the book of Joshua, Israel stands on the brink in danger of civil war. We already saw a couple of weeks ago that that there was developing an us kind of versus them between the, the tribes that were on one side of the Jordan versus those that were on the other side of the Jordan. And now we see that beginning to bubble up to the surface even more. So look at the story with me beginning in verse 10. And when they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, The people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size, seen for miles around is the idea. And the people of Israel heard it said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. 
And when the people of Israel heard it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. And so the two and a half tribes are making their way back across the Jordan and they stop and they build this massive altar that can be seen for miles around. And when the word reaches the the other tribes, they think immediately this is an altar for idolatry. And they are about to go to war. A confrontation is going to take place. But as the story unfolds, it teaches us some relevant truths about carrying confrontation as well as they learn some things. And so this morning, I want us to think about carrying confrontation. What do we need to know about that that this story helps us understand? The first relevant truth is that Satan loves to attack unity. And so confrontation must be done with great care. See, if Satan can get us as followers of God fighting one another, he's won a great victory. And he works hard to get us to have wrong ideas or to confront and to go to war with each other so that that unity is lost. And that's what's about to happen in this chapter. And we're reminded that that unity can be quickly lost if we're not careful. Pastor Jim talked about the number of people working in in Action Day Camp before it and after it, and and that's a reflection of the, the koinonia, the fellowship he talked about. It's a reflection of the unity. But if we're not careful, if we don't guard that, Satan would love nothing more than to to disrupt it. In verse 12, we see that us versus them mentality. Remember, they had just spent seven long years in the trenches together, fighting the Canaanites together. At the beginning of this chapter, Joshua had commended those two and a half tribes for their commitment, for fulfilling their commitment to Moses and to Joshua and to their brethren in Israel and to God himself. And they have defeated enemy after enemy in Canaan, but now... Satan is trying to make them enemies of one another so that they will go to war with each other, and and he loves to do that. Many years ago, I was part of a group, and, and that group almost came apart because of a disagreement over who would be allowed to speak at a meeting. And it was so silly, but Satan almost used it to divide. And he does the same thing in families with spouses. He does the same thing in churches. And you know that when the people of God are fighting each other, the enemies of God are watching. You can imagine the Canaanites were watching to see what was going to happen with this, hoping that there'd be civil war that they could take advantage of. Unity can be quickly lost if we're not careful. And unity is often lost due to misunderstandings. So we need to take care. The two and a half tribes are on their way back across the river. And as they're leaving, I think a sense of loss begins to come to them. And and they think, you know, we're going to be leaving these other people we fought with. We're going to build this massive altar here. And we'll see why in just a minute. But what immediately happens is that the other tribes assume the worst. And don't we often do that? 
Don't we often see somebody do something and we read motives into it that may or may not be there and we assume the situation is worse than it is? For example, today after the service, if if I were to walk by you without speaking, you might think, well, Pastor Bill sure is stuck up. Or, boy, he just must be mad at me because he's not talking to me. When the reality is I'm a task-oriented person, there may be some task and I'm focused on that. I probably didn't even see you when I walked by because of that. But you could start this whole conflict. You could start talking to people about how Pastor Bill's upset with me and he hasn't talked to me about it and, and it could blow up. And that's the assumptions that we often make in situations. It's the assumption that the nine and a half tribes are making. They look at that altar and they think, idolatry. But the reality is very different. And so we're going to jump ahead in the story, and then we're going to come back later. So when we come back, you need to kind of forget what you're about to see so that you experience what Israel's experiencing. But I want you to see how quickly the tribes misjudge the motives of those two and a half tribes. We did not do it from, or we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel, For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, and you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord, so your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore, we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we do perform the service of the Lord in His presence, in other words, at the tabernacle, with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought if this should be said to us or our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. And so we see their motivation. The Jordan Rift Valley is deep and the Jordan runs wide at times and they're afraid that as time passes, that river will become something that really separates them from the other tribes. They say the altar is meant to be a witness to our unity under the same God. So they build an altar that was a replica of the one at the tabernacle, but a lot bigger Because they rightly see the worship of God and sacrifice as the basis for unity. And they're committed to it. They say, we do perform the service of the Lord in His presence. We're not doing it here. We're doing it at the tabernacle. And we can admire their zeal, but maybe their choice was unwise. Because God had already set up means of uniting scattered people. Remember, we saw a couple weeks ago that he had placed Levites in every tribe on on both sides of the Jordan River. They were to teach the law of God. They would be the glue that would help hold the nation together. And in Exodus, we find that God established three feasts. And at those three feasts, all the males from both sides of the Jordan were to come together at the tabernacle and later the temple. And in those three feasts, they would celebrate their unity by being together in their worship of God. So the altar really wasn't needed. I'm not saying it was wrong, but it certainly easily became a cause of misunderstanding and of confusion and of confrontation. 
And so they stand on the brink of civil war, but thankfully, before acting in war, the nine and a half tribes decide to send a delegation to find out what's going on. Verse 13, Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them head of a family among the clans of Israel. Pretty impressive gathering. Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the high priest. Phinehas has already shown earlier in Israel's history a zeal for God. But being the curious person I am, I think, well, why didn't Joshua go? Why didn't Eleazar, the high priest, go himself? Now, it may be that both, we know both of those men are getting up in years, so it may be for that reason. Or it may have been that they said, you know, we don't want to really bring, bring out the big guns initially in this confrontation. We're going to send some impressive leaders, but not quite the guys, to go and talk to them about it. I don't know that it's important that we understand what it is. What is important is that we understand that Satan loves to attack unity. So confrontation must be done with care. And that's what the nine and a half tribes are doing. They're trying to make sure there's a reason for war, a reason for confrontation. They want to be certain of their facts, and that's important. Because Satan will raise often unnecessary divisions between the people of God through misunderstanding. In my previous ministry a number of years ago, there were two ladies who I discovered were at odds with each other. And they were leaders, and their husbands were leaders. And so I pulled them together and sat down and said, you know, what's going on? And what I found out is this lady had done something, let's call her Lady A, and Lady B had assumed a motive, and so she got mad at Lady A, and Lady A then got mad at Lady B, and when I sat them down together, it was a total misunderstanding. And that's what Satan loves to do. He loves to take something little, something trivial, something that we ought to probably by grace overlook or something that is even just entirely misunderstood and drive a wedge between the people of God. There are times when the differences between us should be overlooked. There are times when we ought to just trust other people that they don't have wrong motives. But there are also times to go and sit down and begin a confrontation that's not confrontational by talking through what's happening. While what happened there was almost a tragic misunderstanding, it does allow us to see in the nine and a half tribes some truth. We can appreciate, even if they misunderstood what was happening, we can appreciate as we do the two and a half tribes, we appreciate their desire for unity we appreciate in the nine and a half tribes their stand for truth. Because what we learn in this story is that truth cannot be surrendered even for unity. So sometimes confrontation is needed. There are issues that are significant enough to risk unity by confronting others. You will hear it said sometimes, who needs doctrine Doctrine divides. Let's just all love each other. I want to tell you that love is important, but so is doctrine, so is truth. And we can't really love and come alongside one another if there is a serious violation of truth. 
Several years ago, I read this on a church webpage. This church is about deeds more than creeds, about liberation more than salvation, about justice more than righteousness. This church is non-denominational and emergent community that embraces all cultures, all faiths, and all worldviews. And I'd suggest to you that they really ought to take church out of their name because they're not. And somebody who had a relationship with them, and maybe they did, I don't know, should have confronted them and said, you can't sacrifice truth on the altar of unity. In fact, what this story shows us is that we need to stand for loyalty to God alone. We need to stand for what God has said and who he is. And that's what the nine and a half tribes are doing. Though they're wrong about what's happening, they're standing loyal to God. Because they know that God forbade any other altar of sacrifice other than the one at the tabernacle, later the temple. And they think that's what's happening, though we know, because we jumped ahead, that that wasn't what was happening. And yet we appreciate, we should appreciate their stand for loyalty, their stand for truth. In fact, look at verse 15 with me and notice some of the terminology they use. They are not being wishy-washy or milk toast at all. And they came to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, and they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Those are three very strong phrases. Breach of faith literally is an act of treachery. It's the same phrase that's used back in chapter 7 when Achan takes some of the things from Jericho he's not supposed to take. It's used four times in this passage. We'll see some of them. Then you have the word turning away, the idea of going off the path. It is also used four times. And finally, rebellion, which is the strongest of the three words. The idea of deliberately resisting God. And it occurs five times in this passage. They are concerned about what is happening and loyalty to God alone. In fact, they're so concerned that they are ready to go to war with men that they had stood in battle side by side with. They are ready to go to war even though after seven long years of war, they've got to be tired of war. And yet they say, this is important. Notice, when we're talking about this kind of thing, we're not talking about small things, personal preferences, gray areas. We're talking here about loyalty to God. To put it into our context, we're not talking about uh, music choices or translation that you carry or how you dress as you come to worship. We're not talking about what you can or can't do on Sunday or what sports team you follow. We're talking about loyalty to God. We're talking about fundamental cardinal truths like we celebrated a few minutes ago, like we talked about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what unites us. That's what we have to be committed to. And these tribes were standing for loyalty to God alone. They were also teaching us about standing against the impact of sin whether that's the impact of sin on us or on others. 
See, the nine and a half tribes know that sin defiles not just the person who commits it, but other people. And that's a good lesson for us to remember. And in fact, they point to two historical examples, beginning at verse 17. Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor, from which even yet we've not cleansed ourselves, and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord, that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. Verse 20. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things, and wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel? And he did not perish alone for his iniquity. They point to the sin of Peor, and if you want to read about that later, that's in Numbers chapter 25, a time when Israel went into idolatry and immorality, and God sent a plague, and 24,000 people died. And they say, we're still feeling the impact of that. They point to the impact of Achan's sin. And they say, you know, if, if one guy's sin impacted the nation, what in the world will happen if two and a half tribes sin against God? Don't involve us. Turn from your sin. That's what they're saying. And then they're so concerned about it that they make a really generous offer. But now if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. We will give you some of our land. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels. Don't incriminate us by association, by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. See the grace with which they come? Confrontation, yes, but saying, look, here's what we are willing to do. And that's important. We do need to be concerned about sin. And its impact. But we need to approach people when we think that's what's going on with grace. Paul writes in Galatians 6, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, and by the way, that word transgression doesn't mean I'm looking at your life with a magnifying glass trying to find some little nitpicky sin. Transgression is a big deal. If anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, graciously. Keep watch on yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ is to love one another. So we need to stand against the impact of sin in our own lives and in the lives of others. And when that happens, and, and when we talk to somebody about sin, or they talk to us about sin in our life, and, and it's handled well, then it's a blessing. Because it's a blessing when others share our stand for God and our stand against sin. And in this story, we see the, the two and a half tribes strongly affirm their loyalty to God. Verse 21, then the, tri the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, the mighty one, it's El, God, Elohim, the Lord, Yahweh, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows and let Israel know. God knows our motivation and let you know as well. And then they go into the explanation we saw earlier. But notice their affirmation twice of loyalty to God. The sovereign covenant God knows 
But they're also acknowledging that there are consequences for sin. Because look how they repeat some of the same phraseology and what they offer in verses 22 and 23. If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. In other words, bring the judgment if that's what we've been guilty of. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. Verse 29, far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. See, they they echo the concern about sin, but they say it isn't. We aren't guilty of what you think it is. In fact, our desire is to unify the nation under the worship of God. What I love in this part of the story that, that you might miss if you're not thinking about it is how they don't respond. Because they don't respond like you and I may sometimes respond when somebody talks about a problem in our lives. We don't lash back out. They don't lash out. A number of years ago when our children were small and before we had a dog, they looked in our backyard and they said, there's a dog out there. And I looked out and there was. It was a chow. And chow's, you know, a little... But I thought, okay, I can see there's a tag on his collar. And so I took some food or water or something and I went out to try to see if I could identify him and get him back to his owner. And that dog growled at me and bared his teeth and barked. And I thought, okay. You don't want help? I'm not giving you help. And a lot of times that's how we respond when people talk to us sincerely wanting to help us with something in our lives. Can you imagine if the two and a half tribes had said to these leaders of Israel, what right do you have to question our motives? Go back to those other tribes and tell them to mind their own business. You know what would have happened? Civil war. But instead, they humbly say, you've misjudged what we're doing. Here's the truth of the situation. They acknowledge that they're accountable, but they assert their innocence. And they say, there is no other altar other than the altar of God that unites us, to use New Testament terminology, in spirit and in truth. So if you are aware of an issue between you and another brother or sister in Christ, deal with it in grace. If it's a big deal, you have to deal with it. You have to confront. If it's a little deal and you can overlook it, overlook it in grace. But if somebody comes to you or to me with something they think is going on, we ought to be thankful. We ought to be thankful that they care enough about us and about God and about the impact of sin to talk to us about the situation And if we're guilty, it's not the time for our pride to well up, but it's a time for humble repentance and acknowledgement. And if we're not guilty, then it's not, again, the time for pride and lashing out, but for graciously saying, thank you for caring, but here's what's really going on as we strive for unity, because unity brings blessing. And this story shows us that it is a blessing when others share our stand for God and against sin. It's a blessing when they echo loyalty to God and loyalty to God's word. But it is also a blessing 
when unity crushes conflict. And that's what happens in this story. Unity crushes the war that could have happened. Verse 30, when Phinehas the priest and the chiefs of the congregation and the heads of the families of Israel who are with him heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. It was pleasing. It gave them joy. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, said to the people of Reuben, to the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, today we know that the Lord is in our midst. In other words, our sin hasn't separated him from us. Because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you've delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. There's not going to be judgment. Unity crushes conflict. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest and the chiefs, returned from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad in the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan to the people of Israel and brought back word to them. And the report was, same phrase, good in the eyes of the people of Israel. It pleased them. It brought joy to them. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. Unity crushed conflict. The crisis is averted and there's joy. See, there are times when conflict is necessary, but we need to approach it with grace. Then the whole story wraps up with verse 34, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness. And we've seen that several times. It's to be a witness between us that we're united in the worship of God. By the way, for some of you, You might want to know that the name, the the word for witness in Hebrew is Ed. So if your name is Ed, that means you're a witness to something, I guess. But this is Ed. This is Ed the altar that is a witness between us that the Lord is God. That's a witness that Yahweh is our only God on both sides of the Jordan River as unity crushes conflict. When truth is at stake, Confrontation is often necessary. One commentator has written, Peace is such a precious jewel that I would give anything for it but truth. We cannot sacrifice truth for unity because if we do that, we really no longer have truth. Our unity as followers of Jesus Christ is rooted in truth. It's rooted in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's rooted in in the Word of God. And we dare not sacrifice those doctrines or any other central doctrines of the faith for some kind of false unity. Several years ago, I read about a church denomination in the Netherlands that had a problem. They had a pastor who had come out as an avowed atheist. And so he was brought before the tribunal of that association and they tried to see what should be done and here was their conclusion. The pastor's views are not of sufficient weight to damage the foundations of the church. Really? Denying the existence of God doesn't damage the foundation of the church? Absolutely it does. Somebody should have stood up and said, look, unity is great, but truth is more important, and this guy needs to be defrocked and kicked out. But no, we want to keep united, and we'll sacrifice truth for it. No, we can't do that. We've got to stand, but we have to stand graciously. 
Jesus, John tells us, was full of grace and truth. So we seek both truth and unity. And when we confront, it ought to be for truth. It ought to be for holiness. It ought to be for the well-being of that other person. And it may be this morning that you're here in the worship center or watching online and you don't even know Jesus Christ. And maybe you've observed that people who name the name of Jesus don't always get along. Can I tell you that that's a sad truth? But please do not allow that to distract you from the most important thing which you saw observed earlier, and that's that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for your sins and to draw you into a relationship with him. And before you leave today, talk to somebody or call our office if you're watching online. Because while I've been speaking largely to believers this morning, I do want you to know that Jesus loves you and he wants to save you and to bring you into a united fellowship with people who don't always rub each other the right way, but who need to love one another. And so Israel avoids civil war, at least for a while. By the time we reach the end of the next book, the book of Judges, civil war is occurring. They avoid civil war and they teach us as they do it how important unity is and how much Satan wants to attack it. And yet as important as it is, we can't sacrifice truth for it. But we do need to understand that when we confront, we do it with grace and kindness and love. So maybe this morning there is somebody that you need to reconcile with or somebody that you need to talk to. You need to do it with that grace and truth that models our Savior, not the way we often do it. This is a really convicting quote that I stumbled across again this week. Some Christians present themselves as so brittle and hostile that no one wants to be around them. Even if they are right, they are repulsively right. So let's be right, but let's be graciously right. Because you see, caring confrontation means knowing the truth about the situation and standing for truth in the situation with grace. Let's pray together. Father, we are flawed and imperfect beings. We make assumptions about people's motives. We jump to conclusions. We rub one another the wrong way. We take offense over things that aren't offensive. And yet you've called us to love each other. You've called us to live out the unity that is ours in Christ. So help us to do that. Help us to be aware of the devices of Satan to divide. And yet at the same time, Lord, help us to stand when standing is needed so that we balance grace and truth in our lives and in this church of yours, we pray in Jesus' name.